there used to be huge ash trees here. And, you know, 25 years ago, they were still standing, but they were all dead due to the emerald ash borer. So slowly those giants toppled and made big holes in the canopy. So we've got an uneven aged forest now because we lost so many of those large trees. That's botanist Ellen Jaycart remembering the ash trees of yesteryear, which is also this year because she's talking from the future on episode three of How to Survive the Future, a new podcast from me, Alex Chambers, and Allison Quantz. This week on Interstates, Ellen Jaycart on How to Survive the Future and a musical mystery at the radio station. First, it's How to Survive the Future, episode three, McCormick's Creek State Park. Hello. I think, you know, sort of walking and talking will be good. Um, and then maybe at some point we'll, you know, sit quietly and talk a bit. Okay. If you're open to that. I am. I have until 1130. That's totally fine. All right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a pretty one. What's, what's that? Appendaged water leaf or great water leaf because it's the greatest water leaf. It really is. There are other, several other species, but smaller flowers, blah, kind of looking, frankly. This is just a gorgeous one. Look at those flowers. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that sort of lavender. Mm-hmm. It's an exuberant, just sort of so many buds and flowers on one plant. And that's a really small plant. A big plant can be, you know, two feet around with just dozens and dozens of flowers hanging on it. And there's one yep. surviving in the midst of the yeah. nettles. <laughs> Good luck, Goody. <laughs> Botanists are so used to this phenological calendar that we know when things are going to be flowering. And when we see things that are flowering a full month earlier than they used to, it's hard not to see that and, and realize that has implications. I mean, we all love seeing flowers, so, you know, seeing them earlier in the year, that's great. But they're supposed to have pollinators, and the insects that are pollinating them aren't necessarily following the same schedule that the plants are. The plants are tuned in to day length and temperature. And insects, you know, may have a different calendar. So if we've got plants flowering and the pollinators aren't out yet, that's a big problem. When I started working for the Nature Conservancy, I took a trip up to near Michigan City, Indiana, where we had a beautiful fen called Trail Creek Fen. And I went up with the steward that handled that site, and we walked happily through the fen in our rubber boots because it was mucky, and there was skunk cabbage, and there was marshmallow and there was all kinds of stuff there. And then I got to this part of the fen, and there was this huge shrub. It was about eight feet tall and about eight feet wide, and it was, it was massive. And I thought, I do not know what this thing is.
I started looking in guides and nothing, there were no flowers to look at at that point. And I could not figure out what it was. And then I looked around the base of it and I saw hundreds and hundreds of little shrublings that were clearly the same species as whatever this was. And I realized, oh no, this has got to be something non-native and it must be invasive because look at all of this. And finally, we put together all the cues we could. We, we looked in the guide and we came out to, it was privet. It really struck at my heart because this was a fen that had lady slipper orchids. It had all this stuff. And as those little privet shrubs were gonna grow, they were gonna completely shade that stuff out. And what really made the biggest impression on me, as I was kind of stomping out of the fen, back to the truck, thinking about how much time and energy it was gonna take the steward to cut out that big one and then deal with the smaller ones, I finally raised my eyes and I looked at the neighbor. The neighboring property was a house about 100 yards away and they had a hedge, and that hedge was eight-foot-tall privet all around the house. For the first time, it was truly clear how landscaping with invasive plants was really decimating our nature preserves. I haven't been back there in years, but I'm, I'm wondering what it looks like now because it's it's not an easy thing to engage with a neighbor and convince them to get rid of a very large hedge. And I, I was afraid that the future was not bright for that fen. I'm Ellen Jacart. I am a retired ecologist and spend my time hiking and, and looking at wildflowers and doing native landscaping in my yard. We are in McCormick's Creek State Park. It is late spring, uh, kind of late May, where a lot of the early spring wildflowers have started to fade, but the late spring wildflowers are in full glorious bloom. How long have you been coming to McCormick's Creek? Oof. Just about... 50 years. Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and has it changed? Well, um, probably the biggest change that I notice is when I walk through 50 years ago, there were little dirt paths. Those were the trails. And then about 30 years ago, they decided, no, these need to be bigger trails to accommodate the increasing people that were coming to enjoy the park. And it turned into uh, gravel trails that were, you know, 10 feet wide. And then more people came and the gravel wasn't holding up well. So they decided that they needed to make them wider and asphalt. So now much of the park, what used to be small trails, it, it kind of looks like county roads going through them without the dashed line in the middle. So the, the trails have gotten bigger, which has kind of broken up the forest even more. And there's still a problem with the deer population. The deer had been identified as a problem at McCormick's Creek State Park 
many years ago, 40, 40 years ago, and they've tried to reduce the population, but it hasn't been um, as successful as it should be. So we find that a lot of the most palatable species, the things that deer want to eat, kind of disappear, and we get more and more nettles. We're going to see a lot of nettles. And what are some of the ones that they have been eating? Oh, the trilliums. They love the trilliums. The orchids, the showy orchis is is a nice late spring uh, flower, and it's really unlikely we're going to see one today because deer just love uh, orchids, and so uh, those are pretty much gone. The, the ones that hang on are like the Guyandot beauty because it's a mint and it tastes funny. The deer don't tend to eat it as much, so that we still have. Another change we've seen is there used to be huge ash trees here. And, you know, 25 years ago, they were still standing, but they were all dead due to the emerald ash borer. So slowly those giants toppled and made big holes in the canopy. New species came up. Um, Not as many oaks as, as were in the canopy before because these small light gaps don't really help oak species that much. But um, so we've got um, an uneven aged forest now because we lost so many of those large trees. There's lots of little patches of young trees filling in behind the ash that all died. Hmm. And did the ashes die in the 20 teens, was it? Yeah. Um, Emerald ash borer first came in in 2001 in Michigan, 2005 in Indiana, I believe. And really the first ash deaths in this area of McCormick's Creek, oh gosh, it was probably um, 2015 or so. And then they slowly died one by one. I see. Uh, Yeah, let's go down the, should we go down here at the paper path? Okay, great. So did people just realize with the ash borer that it was just inevitable? Yeah. In the early years, there was this sense of somehow we would keep it from moving outside of Detroit where it came in. Mm. And they set up what they called fire breaks where they would go in and on a very large scale remove all ash trees for like a mile wide Uh, This was in northern Indiana to try and keep it from coming in, and that did not work. (laughs) And so it came in and slowly spread um, through the state, moving to the south. And uh, now it's pretty well established, um, and we've got very few ash trees left. There's one species called blue ash, and there's some of that in this park. And it doesn't seem as susceptible to emerald ash borer. So there's still blue ash, but the white ash, the green ash, black ash, and pumpkin ash pretty much all died. McCormick's Creek State Park is a big state park, and the first state park created in Indiana. 
And it's known for having just spectacular plants, uh, native plants and, and spring wildflower displays in particular. And I remember being there, you know, when I was younger and just being blown away by the number of species and then the, just the sheer um, display, the, the swaths, the swords of, of native plants. There's a place you can go, or you used to go. Um, there were a couple of big old logs, sycamores, that had come down and just kind of crisscrossed uh, in this low area, which was right next to the stream that flows into McCormick's Creek. So you've got this creekside location. And all along the way, you're seeing Green Dragon and Jack in the Pulpit and Spring Beauty and Celandine Poppy and all of the beautiful, you know, spring ephemerals. And later in the season, as those have just started to fade, the pink turtle head would come out. And until it's in flower, you don't even notice that plant because it's, it's about a foot tall. It's not huge. The, the leaves are not real noticeable. But then suddenly it comes into flower and it's called turtle head because the flower looks like a turtle head on end, like the mouth of the turtle is sticking up into the sky. And the common species is the cream-colored turtle head, which is a nice little plant. But pink turtle head? You've got all these little pink turtle heads. And it's like a field of them as you're walking along the trail, hundreds and hundreds of plants. And a, a site that you wouldn't see anywhere else in Indiana, because it really is a pretty rare plant, but just an absolute abundance of it as you just walk through and, and look at those beautiful plants. And what were some of the, um, the shrubs and plants that did used to be here? Well, there used to be uh, nodding trillium, lots and lots of nodding trillium, prairie trillium, toad shade. Those are uh, also trillium species. Oh, this used to be a place for putty root orchid. There was putty root orchid everywhere, which is one of those strange uh, winter orchids. We have a couple of orchids in Indiana that they put out their new leaf in late fall and it overwinters because, uh, you know, plenty of sun is coming through because the trees don't have any leaves on. Right. It's photosynthesizing all winter. Then come next May, it puts up the shoot of orchid flowers about a foot tall uh, and then the flowers get pollinated, they produce their fruits, and that leaf that was out all winter is shriveling up and dying, so it really doesn't even have a leaf in the summer. Come fall, new leaf goes out. And there was so much putty root in this uh, state park. Huh. Uh, it's a really cool one. Wow, I'd love to see that. So Trillium's putty root Oh, what's that? This. You got it. That's putty root. That's putty root. That's why I can't believe Amazing. you did that. In the midst of nettles, you can't grab it. But so I don't even see the leaf at the base. It's completely dead brown. Oh, wait, there it is. There it is. 
that's the putty root oh, leaf that yeah. was out all winter. Familiar orchid leaf. I was really looking for that, hoping we would see it. There it is. That's the putty root orchid. It's getting pollinated right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then it will turn into little hanging fruit brown pods that have the seeds. Okay. Um, how fun. <laughs> yeah. And right. There are places um, where there, there is a lot today. Oh. Um, but uh, it can be hard to see because it kind of, especially if it's just brown back there, it kind of blends in and you don't notice it given the color of uh, of those flowers, kind of a crimson, dark brown slash yellowish green. Yeah, it's it's a sort of, I feel like it's a strange and unusual stalk and flowers, but the flowers themselves aren't particularly exciting. No, you have to kind of get up close and then look into uh, them to yeah. see the complexity of an orchid flower. Right, yeah, I can see that close up. So when I was working, you know, 40, 50 years ago, the single biggest hazard that our workers had out in the field was, was ticks and, and tick-related illnesses. As the years went by, we saw an incredible increase, not only in the number of ticks that we saw, in the range of the ticks, because when I started my career, Lone Star ticks were known from counties in southern Indiana near the Ohio River. The Lone Star ticks are now all over the Indiana Dunes National Park. So they've expanded their ranges. The populations are higher in part because the um, invasive shrubs have uh, really dominated the understory of a lot of our forest systems. And, and when those shrubs make that sort of dense thicket in the understory, it provides cover uh, for the small mammals, for the deer, who are the hosts for the ticks. So there were a couple of groundbreaking studies back 50 years ago that um, pointed out that if you go in and you count the number of ticks in a forest that has Asian bush honeysuckle in the understory, and then you remove all the Asian bush honeysuckle and you go back and you count the ticks, there's a significant reduction in the number of ticks. And what it means for people is that the public health office notes that there's a significant reduction in the tick-carried uh, illnesses. And, and those include not just Lyme disease, which is pretty well known, and Rocky-mounted spotted fever, which has been a bad problem in southern Indiana, but also ehrlichiosis, and some others that I can't even remember the names. It's, it seemed like about every five years or so, a new disease was identified that we didn't realize before, that the field workers had had it, and but nobody knew what it was. And then they would trace it, and it would be traced to a tick, and it would be a new uh, tick-carried illness. As that threat spread and more and more people became aware of the health implication of invasives, they actually were able to pass more stringent regulations so that plants that were going to be sold had to, to go through an assessment and shown to be non-invasive before they could be sold. But it wasn't magic pixie dust that just made all the invasives already out there on the landscape disappear. And they didn't disappear. They seemed to do better with climate change, the slightly higher CO2 
the earlier growing season is something that invasive species can often adapt to better than native plants. And so where we had invasions, they continued to spread unless the landowner or the public agency was willing to go in and control those invasives. And, you know, they had to make hard choices. I think in in those years, agencies in particular became a lot more strategic about, we've got all of these acres, where do we have enough money to spend and be able to remove the invasives and protect the biodiversity that we have? And so, you know, in in most public areas now, you'll see almost sort of what you might call sacrifice areas that have just grown up in oriental bittersweet and Asian bush honeysuckle. But where there was diversity, the nicest areas, they've drawn a line and that's where they focus their efforts so that we still have some remnants that you can walk to and, and see what things look like once upon a time before invasives really took over much of the landscape. Hi. Hi. Hello. Having a good hike? No. no. <laughs> we're seeing some of the spring ephemerals that are now fading, like the May apple flowers. Oh, we've got the ferns that are coming out. Here's a nice fern. Look at this. Oh, I love this one. This is glade fern. It is um, just this tall tufts of ferns and uh, just simple pinnae on the frond. And uh, it's, it's a fern that really likes moist woods, and that's what this is. And importantly, deer don't eat ferns almost ever. In ancient history, when Brown County State Park had such high deer populations that the hills were actually brown, that was 1989, and it was my first year in Indiana, and I could not believe in the middle of summer, I was seeing these huge hills that were brown. The only green left was Christmas fern and a few other ferns that the deer refused to eat. What was really most dramatic about Greens Bluff Nature Preserve and what drew attention to it and what got it protected by the Nature Conservancy, boy, back in the 1960s, were the hemlocks. There were these gorgeous remnant stands of hemlock lining the bluffs. And they were there because in the last, when the glaciers were there, it was cool enough, it was wet enough, they established. And as the glaciers receded, they held on in these little ridges and canyons where they were protected from the heat of the middle of the day. And they were beautiful. And then as the years went on, they stopped reproducing so much. We just weren't seeing young, young hemlocks in the stand anymore. And we figured that that tied to climate change and that we were seeing mortality among some of the older uh, hemlocks. And well, maybe it's just too warm. It's too dry in late summer due to the changes we were seeing in the climate. And that was not helping. 
But the final nail in the coffin was hemlock woolly adelgid. That's a, a little bug, looks like a kind of a mealy bug, that attacks hemlocks specifically. And we had been waiting for it to arrive in Indiana for decades, hoping that it would stay away because we are hundreds of miles from the closest hemlock stand in Kentucky. And we had hoped we were safe. Unfortunately, it came in the way I was afraid it would. People are buying hemlocks for landscaping, and they're coming from Tennessee and North Carolina, both of which are covered in hemlock woolly adelgid. And so some hemlock woolly adelgid came in on one of those landscaping shrubs, uh, landscaping trees, and then it moved out into Green's Bluff. And so, oh... It was about 10 years ago, the last one pretty much died. Do you remember the moment when you realized that it had come to Indiana? Yep, because I'm, I have been for many years. They, they send out reports from the Division of Entomology and Plant Pathology. I used to work with them as, as a partner. And every time there's a new insect pest, they send out a report. And I saw that report and my heart sank. And I had... <laughs> tried for years to get that division to put an external quarantine on hemlock, meaning that we would not bring hemlock into the state because of that very risk. We saw twice in Michigan that it was landscaping hemlocks that brought hemlock woolly adelgid into Michigan, and now they're fighting it. But they didn't do a quarantine, and those hemlocks kept coming in, and it finally spelled the end of hemlock in Indiana. That's unfortunate. Idiots. I'll just put you in here. Had a few roots on it, and they're pretty good at rerooting, so. And what is that? Wild ginger. Oh, I should have shown you. Wild ginger, that's the flower, and a fruit is being produced there. But, and if it can reroot, maybe those seeds will finish ripening and be able to start okay. more plants. It's a real shallow-rooted plant. Hmm. I use it a lot in my landscaping because it makes, like right there, it's a beautiful carpet of wild yeah. ginger. So that's kind of a lot of my landscaping. One thing I was thinking about was like the pink turtle head, right? Yeah. And, you know, having pretty much lost that in the recent decades, um, and how when you, you know, the first couple decades of you being here, it was just this vast swath of amazing pink flowers. And not to sound callous, but like, it's one kind of plant and it's one small spot. You know, what does it matter, I guess? Yeah, boy, I've gotten that question over the years. And I guess, you know, there are different ways of looking at it. You know, if you're a spiritual person, these are amazing plants, plant species that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years and have this intricate relationship with the pollinators and the wildlife that eat the fruits. And, and it's a part of a network. And by pulling out an individual species, it changes all of that connections. And it's just like a car. 
if you have a car and you pull off a windshield wiper, well, it'll still drive just fine. You got one wiper. And then if you take, you know, the steering wheel and, well, that's a little difficult to make it go. And, and as you remove one piece after another, it just gets harder and harder for the system to actually function. And ultimately, from a selfish perspective, these systems support us. These systems are what keep human, the human race going by cleaning our water, by providing oxygen, all of these different things that nature is doing for us. And if we're basically tearing it apart to the point where it no longer functions, we are harming ourselves. So there's a lot of uh, uses beyond simply the fact that all living beings, I believe, have the right to survive. Well, that was a little excessive. I will, I will step back from that. All species have a right to survive. The evolution that created those species should be respected. And individuals are gonna die, but when you start seeing whole populations blinking out, that's kind of the canary in the coal mine. You're seeing real impacts and reasons that that species can't survive. That should be a red flag to us about what about the human species? What's, what's causing all of these extirpations of native plant species? And what does that mean for humans? Okay, so we, here's the park office, and back here, you cross the road to mm -hmm. Trail 2. Okay. You go down, there's a split off to see the old quarry, which is worth seeing. It's fun. A lot of, a lot of history there. The limestone was loaded onto boats on the creek. Oh, wow. Cool. And, but if you go straight, <laughs> what I recall kind of in this area, it's before you get close to the, the McCormick's Creek. If this is a low area, mm -hmm. there's some downed trees and it's just kind of wet mm -hmm. and mushy, that's where the um, uh, pink turtle head is. So that should be it right there, unless I'm misremembering. So oh, no. thanks. Mm -hmm. Because you probably know this place well enough. Well, I've got multiple map. maps. I always grab ones. extra ones. Cause, really? Yeah, it's because sometimes it's like, well, wait, does that trail connect to that trail? Yeah, like right. if I do this, and so yeah, yeah I have extras. <laughs> cool. All right, bye, Alan. That was episode three of How to Survive the Future, a show about today from an imagined tomorrow. I produced the show with editing, tape gathering, and all-around support from Allison Quantz, who also came up with our title. Our theme music is by Amy Olsner, and we have additional music from Ramon Monras Sender, Backward Collective and Last Ledges, and Airport People. Thanks to Molly Weiler for additional editorial support. And special thanks to Ellen Jaycart for imagining herself into the future. How to Survive the Future was produced in partnership with Indiana Humanities, with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities and with further support from the Writers Guild at Bloomington. You can listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, we've got a bit of a musical mystery. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We've been hearing music here at the WFIU offices, and we don't fully understand how it's getting here. You'd think we would control all the music. We're the radio station. But ever since we've come back to the office, there's been this other music. Like a radio, but one we can't turn off. Like a radio, but from on high. Maybe more like the voice of God. These bells have been the soundtrack to our workday. And while it's nice to be important enough to have a soundtrack, like most kinds of fame and fortune, it does come with some complications. Something that I think happens because you're hearing it in the background, it's part of your everyday existence, but you're not really trying, you're trying not to listen to it, but then... This is my colleague, host of Earth Eats, Kate Young. You start kind of picking up a melody. Is that that? Is it this? Is it that? You know, and then that's what makes it so distracting, is because the arrangements for the carillon are so different than they would be on guitar or something that you're just struggling to figure out what it is that you're hearing and that takes your mind away from your work. And another thing is just if I can go all acoustic and music theory nerdy on you. Mark Chilla, host of Afterglow and Morning Edition in Bloomington. It has to do with the bells themselves because bells don't produce the same kind of tone as like a piano or a guitar would. There's a, you hear a lot of overtones with a bell, and a lot of those overtones ring very strongly. So when you hear a note, you're hearing a lot of overtones with that note. So the note itself is not always clear what pitch it is, which can get really confusing because you're trying to follow, you're trying to follow this melody, but you're hearing all these <laughs> ringing overtones over it. And you're like, wait, where is the melody exactly? And then all of a sudden you have, you're, you're not working anymore. You are <laughs> focusing on the acoustics of bells uh, in the middle of your work day, which, you know, is a nice distraction sometimes. So I said there was a bit of a mystery here. It's not about where the bells are coming from. There's a tower about 350 feet from our windows. It's the Wells Metz Carillon. It was moved here from across campus in 2019 and unveiled at the beginning of 2020. That's what we do know. What we don't know is who's playing it or how it's played. How do they keep it going for hours and hours every weekday afternoon? We developed some theories. One that I thought up until today was that it was all pre-recorded or or like kind of like a player piano kind of thing where uh you know there was some sort of uh pre-programmed music that was going through the carillon cuz we we were hearing the same songs over and over and over again each and every day so i thought maybe it's not a real live person maybe it's kind of like a player piano but it's a player carillon instead that's what I thought, too. I mean, that's honestly, I think that's what I still think. Mm-hmm. I'm My vote is still that it's a player piano, and there's a set number of songs, and they're, they're programmed. That's what I think. Kate had a little more faith in musical humanity. I think that it's a real person, and I think they're playing live. But what I don't know is, are they in the structure of the carillon 
with some mallets or something, you know, which is what I want to think, but I don't I don't actually believe that. I think that they're somewhere else. I think like I think they're in some room in Jacobs and they're playing. That's uh the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, just across campus. But I think that they're students and that they're practicing. And I think that because I often hear the same song more than once in a session. And it feels like they're kind of working on it. And I also hear, like we were just listening to America the Beautiful, and we heard quite a bit of hesitation between notes at times where they're, you know, they're they're practicing. It's not pre-programmed. Okay, but so here's why I don't think it's someone practicing. Unless it's just one person practicing Mm -hmm. all the time, I feel like there would be more repertoire is there like a book? Is there a when you go inside the structure of the carillon and sit at the keyboard or grab the mallets or grab the ropes or what however you play it, is there like a certain like is there a certain set of, of songs that you can only play? Which includes Under the Boardwalk and Summertime and Here Comes the Sun and Vincent by Don McLean and all the other songs that we've heard hundreds and hundreds of times, it seems, at this point. Another colleague of ours heard something even more radio-worthy. Violet says she heard some Britney Spears songs. It's a pretty wide range. Yeah, it's a pretty wide range, which put a hole in my pre-programmed theory. And there were still more questions. I don't quite know how a carillon works. Is it like a keyboard that you play, or is, is someone with mallets? Are there Are they... Is it like kind of like a belfry where they're pulling on big ropes to play bells or something like that? I don't actually know. I wish I did know, especially because the carillon has become such an, an important or at least uh, <laughs> integral part of my life each and every day as I, as I am in the office. I have so many questions about it, and I really want to learn more about who programs it, who's playing it, how is it played, where is it played? This, these, are all, these are all really good questions. Yep. All right. Well, it's a mystery. I am going to try to dig into it and uh, get you some answers. Please. Dig into it, I did. The dark corners of the internet have a lot to say about carillons. Here's what I was able to find out. But let's, uh, let's just keep this between us. Carillons evolved from single-belled instruments. Guess those would just be called bells. They evolved from bells. In the Middle Ages, a bell on a tower told the time of day, and it could also send messages like fire, or we're being attacked, or there is a plague upon us. Everyone stay inside and wait for Zoom meetings to be invented. The time of day thing has continued. If you live near a big church or a university, you might be used to hearing the bells ring out the hour. At first, it was just that. They'd ring once for one o'clock, twice for two, and you know, so on. But pretty early on, people realized a heads up would be nice, so you'd know to start counting. So they established what's called the four strike, and they added more bells so that four strike could be a melody. Now we get four strikes every quarter hour, building up to four four strikes on the hour, and then the count. This was all happening in a very particular part of the world. In the 16th century, the Netherlands and Belgium were like Silicon Valley in the late 1990s. Money was flowing in, and everyone wanted a carillon bigger than the next towns. And then the tables turned. After the French Revolution, there was a copper shortage, and the sound of the bells was no longer their most appealing quality. 
people dismantled carillons all over the place. And then grandfather clocks and pocket watches undercut carillons monopoly on the time. At this point, the mid-19th century, things weren't looking so good for the blue whale of musical instruments. But things changed again in the 1880s, because by then, bellmakers had developed ways to tune the bells more precisely, and that made people want to have carillon concerts. The first was in 1892, and it put the instrument on the map as a soloist rather than just background sound. Although, I don't know, that distinction still seems a little fuzzy. I often like to think of it that the carillon is part of the soundscape of a city. So here at the Mets, we're part of IU soundscape, along with the sirens and the birds and people walking around outside. And that's a really unique honor, I think, that carillon performers have. The carillon is a very public instrument. If you're in the vicinity and it's playing, you're going to hear it. At the same time, carillon performers are pretty anonymous. It took me some work to find one. I had to try multiple search terms. But I did eventually track down the person I needed, Lindley Wang. I'm the current Carillon Associate Instructor and also University Carillonist here at Indiana University, and I have the joy of ringing the Mets Carillon. We met up at the base of the Carillon, and before anything else, I had to get some answers to Kate and Mark. I'm very curious. Well, here you go. Is there a person inside always, or is it just is it like a player piano kind of thing where it's somehow programmed? Usually it's going to be a person, but we also have an automatic mechanism. When it's a real person, are they actually in the carillon, or is it somehow controlled remotely? You have to be up there. Everything is mechanical. Is it a keyboard? Is it mallets? Are you pulling ropes? We actually sit at a playing console that has both a manual keyboard for your hands and also a pedal compass. Who's generally playing? Is it students? Is it always you? Not always me. I do have minions, and they're the students of the IU Carillon Studio. For a long time, we're hearing things like Under the Boardwalk, Here Comes the Sun, Don McLean's Vincent, mm -hmm. as well as seasonally themed things. But I would think if it was students, they would be playing a variety of, I mean, a wider variety, and there wouldn't be quite as much repetition. So you're probably hearing the same student come back and again at the same time practicing their set of repertoire, which is why you hear repeated music. Every student has, you know, their own little niche of music that they tend to like best. Who decides what gets played? Well, at first, I assign some music just so that they can nail down the technique. But after that, the world is your oyster. Gotcha. So I'm amazed to hear that they're actually up in the tower. Yeah. They are actually up in the tower. Yeah. It's a pretty cool space, actually. I got to go up there. She took me up. And uh, the, the console looks like a piano and an organ got together and had Pinocchio as a baby. <laughs> I have to say that it does make me feel better. Yeah. It makes me feel better knowing that someone, a human being who's interested in carillon, is learning to play this somewhat rare instrument or yeah. something, you know, and that, that that's who's choosing the music and they're choosing it for their own exploration. But also for our enjoyment as well, you know, because it's such a public instrument. So there's something <laughs> nice about that rather than just like, oh, we'll just put on something in the background. Let's press play on a on an automated thing or you know so there's something nice about that yeah, yeah it's kind of like radio <laughs> except with the radio you can turn it off and on yes. at your at your leisure will. yes yeah <laughs> and that of course is the crux of the situation that was the thing i had really called linley to talk about and it was also the thing that i was most nervous about asking so i uh i put it off signed up for the tour instead. I love doing tours. I love being 
bringing people up into the tower. There's a door at the base of the carillon. Lindley unlocked it and led me up a flight of stairs. In we go. Before I let you in, I'm going to have you look up because you can actually see our bells. Wow. If you step carefully over here so uh -huh. you don't go down our steps, right. you'll see our baby bells are actually right above the plane cabin. Wow. And if you look straight up, you'll actually see one of our largest bells. Wow. All right. And then I'll let you into our plane cabin. Okay. Come on in. We were in a small climate-controlled room with a bench and a playing console. Instead of keys, there were two rows of what looked like the ends of broomsticks. You play them by pushing down with your fists. There are also pedals for your feet. Each of the broomsticks and pedals uses metal rods and levers to connect to a clapper way up in the bell. So you press down on the broomstick, it's actually called a baton, and that makes the clapper hit the bell. Remember how Mark said bells have a lot of overtones? They ring a main note, but lots of other notes come floating through too. That also explains why a lot of the music sounds just a little off. It's not just that it's weird to hear a Britney Spears song from a bell tower. It's also about those overtones. For classically trained musicians, they often are very distracted sometimes by the music of the carillon, like confused. And it's because the carillon has a very strong minor third overtone, whereas in Western classical music tradition, it's usually major third overtone. So for example, if I play something major sounding, it almost feels like you've bitten into a lemon. It's got a little bit of a twinge, but if I play a minor third, it feels very comfortable. Like you could slide right into the water and stay there for a little bit. It feels really nice. Lindley played some music for me. I'm gonna play you a sample, and I want you to pay attention to all the extra noise. I was recording in the playing cabin, so you hear all the mechanics. The carillon's made to be listened to outside. Also, you won't be able to hear this, but Lindley was getting a workout. It's so physical. <laughs> it is definitely very physical. And it's because you're moving literally tons of heavy metal. It is not, you know, it's not like a little violin we're playing up here. And it's like, it's a really big instrument. Yeah, it's got 65 bells. Four of those were added in the renovation and they have quotes from famous women poets inscribed on them. The biggest bell is six feet wide, over six tons. And just to be clear, those batons and pedals move clappers that hit the bells. The bells themselves are stationary. Okay, so I'd gotten a sense of the situation, but I still hadn't gotten an answer to the crucial question. It had been almost an hour. If I was gonna do it, now was the time. Um, like, it's, it can be a little challenging. <laughs> <laughs> 
The listening or the playing? <laughs> the the listening. I mean, not when I'm like this. Like this was lovely, and um, and you know, it would have been nice to hear it outside where it was like the mm-hmm. bells were more clear and, and stuff. But you know, like when you're when you're working, you know, do you um, do you like listen to music when you're working? I don't, but I know my brother is probably Spotify's best customer, uh-huh. so he listens a lot. Right. And I know right. people have differing opinions on listening to music while they work, and it is tricky. I know what you're kind of getting at. Yeah, right. It's like, it, how do we balance, you know, making music versus possibly making noise? Uh, and it's a really tricky question. All Carillons navigate this question differently. Here at IU, since the tower is so new and we started during COVID, I think we were given a lot of freedom in terms of ringing the bells. No one was really on campus. We also wanted to raise awareness, so more was better at the beginning. Lindley loves the Carillon. She even wrote a children's book about all the bells on campus. It's about a squirrel looking for the Wells Matt's Carillon. It's called Is This My Home? Clearly, Lindley wants the rest of us to love the Carillon too. And she recognizes that too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing. I think as the Carillon enters into a new stage of life where people know more about it, and we want the Carillon to continue to be a thing of joy for the campus, I think the next step is probably instilling weekly or daily ring times where the Carillon only rings for a couple of hours and most of the practice is being done elsewhere. Lindley left Indiana University the week after we talked. I don't think it had to do with me. She said something about finishing grad school. Anyway, since then, the Carillon's been much quieter. Her students must be taking a break, too. I imagine they'll start playing again once the new semester starts. I'm feeling more okay with that. Lindley's enthusiasm rubbed off a bit. And look, I understand. Even if your job doesn't involve adjusting sound all day, like ours do in the radio station, you also might not want to listen to music as you work. That's legit. But I don't know, it was hard staying home for a year and a half. It's kind of nice to know there's a real person up there, ringing out the bells to say, hey, the pandemic's still on, but you can come outside. Be around other people again. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates, or on Twitter at interstatespod. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Cella, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Airport People. All right, time to go listen to something. been listening to rain on a hot summer evening. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.